The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Listeners, welcome. This is Sound Only. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Mike Peters. We're your sound-only co-hosts, here to record our deepest, darkest thoughts about the emails sent to us by the very listeners of this very podcast. This is a mailbag episode. Um, this is like almost an Underground Railroad episode. It's all, it's a- it was very close to be. We were on the cusp of, of having an Underground Railroad episode, but... Um, I'm trash and have only watched the first two episodes. And Charity has written a very wonderful piece about this very show on uh, TheRigger.com. You should go look at it. Yes, um, you should read it. Don't just look at it, read it. I mean, but also, I, mean, like, I, I really read it. I mean, I, that I was say, implied, but up top, I really like Underground Railroad. Uh, Barry Jenkins, you crazy bastard, you did it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, yeah, I like it is. I will say that it is I, I, the, the, okay. So, the thrust of it, the thrust of Jerry's piece was like basically that the entire um trauma porn critical response to this sort of thing that tends to happen in mass when it's released is more reflection of this kind of subject matter being handled poorly rather than it being. Uh, the subject matter itself, which is grotesque and horrifying. And yes, this is a show about a fictive version of the Underground Railroad that is actually underground. Yeah, and, highly stylized. And, yeah, yeah, highly yeah. stylized. And I mean, like, it's, it's, it involves uh, all of the violence and torn flesh and carnage that that implies but it's also like really a like beautiful show i mean like the the the, like even from the 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 very but like the cold open with them uh falling down the shaft to string music is it like and it's like a gigantic expanse and it feels very uh i guess like anime but also in the same way that like Gandalf falling from the tallest peak in the tallest tower where I fought the whatever thing uh, from Lord of the Rings as well. But, you know. I'm glad you, you're you the one who brought up anime. Cause I can't remember if this stayed in the piece. But yeah, I remember in the very end of the first episode of Underground Railroad when the show introduces the, the idea that the Underground Railroad in this fictional, you know, the, the show is based on the novelization, uh, based on the novel, Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And so in this show, in this story, it's a tra- it's an actual train. And the way that the train is introduced so reminds me of how Ikuhara does the magical girl train transformation sequences in Penguin oh, Drum. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay, I see where we're I see. Um, yeah, I don't know. It seems self-evident to be like, well, some shows are good and some some shows are bad. And it is on some level, but yeah, I just 
even in myself, but certainly in other people, I, I saw that thing of like, oh man, am I ready to deal with another slavery show or another slavery thing? And I don't know. It's it's tough because it's that kind of response is understandable on some level, but it it, it is it's kind of sucks, right? It kind of sucks that something you're talking about like a 200 year stretch of human history that is legit fascinating, right? It's so grotesque and monstrous and full of contradictions that like, yeah, that is actually really fascinating subject matter, but something about popular culture and something about like the American psyche is just become so numb to it. And it's one thing if the show had sucked, like, I don't know, them is not about slavery, but it's about black trauma and that show kind of sucked, right? Mm -hmm. And Barry Jenkins, though, I watched this show and I was like, man, he really did the thing. Like this show <laughs> actually has the goods in so many different ways. It's beautiful, but to me, it's like just really intelligently written and the character development in the show is really intelligently done. And that's when I started to kick myself and be like, I can't believe I was ready to just sort of roll my eyes at the idea of this show. Um, so there, there you have, listeners, the limits of being a hater. And we are always self-aware and self-conscious of the limits of being a hater. But on most days, it is the proper disposition for most things, I would argue. You know, we, it's, you live longer. It clears your skin. <laughs> Like there's all it's, it's, there's all sorts of benefits to it. Yes, try it. It might change your life. <laughs> On that note, uh, we should turn to our listener emails. Um, when we were asking for emails for this mailbag, you know, we were talking a lot. I think it was when we did the superhero symposium episode, right? Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about like not everybody who emails us is a hater, but they get they get the merits of they, being a hater. Yeah, they you know understand. I mean? the simple pleasures of being a hater. And that's the thing I love about our listeners. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot of fandom in these questions and a lot of hate and ass hating in these questions. I like the, the proportion, I guess, is what I would say, of uh, love and hate in these emails. Um, I would like to start with an email from a self-described... Uh, well, first of all, I'll just read the question in full because I love this setup from... I'm sorry if I mispronounced this. I think it's Barani Cole. You can yell at us if, if we're wrong about this, but he writes... Seems like he will. Based on this email. Yeah, well, based on, based on the email, which reads thus, for Mailbag Day, I wanted to ask a hating-ass question because I'm a hating-ass nigga from Chicago, which is like the worst hating... You know what I mean? Like, of all the places you could be from, the most menacing place you could be from with that kind of steeliness in your opening line in Chicago. Like, we respect that energy. And that's why you're the first email on this episode, okay? Do you all have any takes by white critics about media dealing with black trauma that annoy you? <laughs> uh, for example, <laughs> y'all temperature may vary, but <laughs> this, is, this is, wow, we really, I really put this first, didn't I? Um, for example, y'all temperature may vary, but every time a white critic praises, oh, wait, I forgot, Whoa, okay. Yeah, okay, here we go, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. All right, this question, this question is lit, okay. Like, all right. For, mm, for example, y'all temperature may vary, but every time a white critic praises Michael B. Jordan's portrayal of Killmonger or some of the developments in the latter half of HBO's Watchmen as powerful or, quote, necessary or the like, I roll my eyes. People are free to like what they like, but damn, I can't stand it. Shout out and respect to the great Chadwick Boseman, but I feel his performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom kind of falls into, the, into this, too, on the lowest of keys. I'm a hater, though. Appreciate you all keeping that hating ass energy. We're going to break this question down into parts, because the first <laughs> part of it is, well, we'll get to the white critic thing. No, uh, we can start with that. I mean, this is, it's the hardest question of all these questions. Um, yeah. Any takes by white critics about media dealing with black trauma that annoy you? I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know. I, I've kind of tuned out a lot of white critics having I, to like, it's of, really not, like not, It's not something, to, a thing that I've... Yeah, it's like, I've, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because it's just kind of like, there's 
I, it's just like, I, yeah, it's just like I, I'm not really concerning myself with what white critics have to say about black trauma. And, um, and I don't even mean that in some chauvinistic way, right? Like, I, I, I read white critics. I'm not saying that I don't. But I think specifically the framing of the question, okay, do you have any takes by white critics about media dealing with black trauma that annoy you? Um, I think if you asked me that question four years ago, I would have said yes, and I would have just offhand been able to cite, like, 19 different examples I had encountered in in just the past couple weeks. Whereas I think more recently, especially with a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, right? Like them, or, I mean, we haven't talked about Underground Railroad, but like Lovecraft Country, right? That was stuff where so much as I read other criticism about the show, I feel like I I just, I read Black Critics, I texted Cam, (laughs) you know what I mean? But like, Yeah, I don't know. And I actually think, though, that even this answer is kind of an answer to the to the question itself. Right. Which is I used to feel that way all the time. I used to feel every week like I would encounter maybe a sort of wording or a sort of. Well, you know, the the sort of well-intentioned white liberal phrasing of trying to have to be the person on staff at a publication who has to engage with, you know, like. Black art that Things really that wants to make you uncomfortable. Engage with, or yeah, with, yeah, it's or just, at least on that level, engage yeah. with on that level. You know what yeah. I mean? Of having to be like a somewhat like a voice of authority on something that you don't really know a whole lot about. Like it's just like where there's just a thing. There's just a lot of room to slip up there, and I think like probably like to your point, like the whole thing about answering. Well, it would have been different four years ago. Is that there's. There's like the stage in which we keep it like really your your nose is closer to the ground on that and you're keeping like closer tabs on everything. And then there's like kind of a bit of a <laughs> like letting go point where you realize you can let you can do other things with your time. Yeah. Um, well, because the main thing. OK, so this the question just reminds me of, I don't know, back when like to Bimpa Butterfly came out, like the Kendrick album and so much of what kind of irritated me about that rollout was, yeah, that weird clash between you're dealing with this very pro-Black piece of music, right? And you have a lot of publications that don't actually employ Black critics consistently. And so a lot of the the praise and hype for that rollout was this very, it was a pro-Black sort of discourse. But yeah, you kind of got tired of seeing like, you know, the 40-year-old white critic at a publication try to do this like Spike Lee impersonation <laughs> in like in like giving this album a, a 10 out of 10. You know what I mean? I feel like that's kind of the spirit of the question. And the answer is that I, one, I think maybe publications, have, I, I feel like more, I don't know, I just read more Black critics now and that is the way I've gotten my blood pressure down. <laughs> it's honestly the answer to it. So yeah, that my answer I guess is no. There it's are no just like recently. there's a less going on the internet to pick fights these days yeah and i don't have a twitter account no more so that's also probably why like i there are probably millions of annoying takes that i've missed can we get to the second part of this question though because yeah um yes let's get to the to the second part of this question could you could you read it one more time for me please your temperature may vary but every time a white critic praises michael b jordan's portrayal of killmonger or some of the developments in the latter half of hbo's watchmen is powerful or necessary or the like i roll my eyes so that first of all michael b jordan's portrayal of killmonger You and I literally did we, an article about this to the week Black we Panther did, came out. Yes. Well, the thing is that like we talked about the, the politics of that the movie. Politics like, yeah. of of uh yeah, well, we've just talked uh, at length about Wakanda's f- approach to foreign policy. But yeah. we did also like have a brief aside where we were talking about Michael B. George's portrayal of Killmonger, which was um, just kind of characterized by a sort of infantile rage and like it just had a lot of page 50 energy to it. Um, and there's a galaxy brain version of this where you're just kind of like, oh, that's also good acting because like it's supposed to be um, that he's kind of a bit of like a tragic figure and st- you know, that pause was really good when he was talking about the, <laughs> the slave, slave ships. 
<laughs> and then there's a phrase in the thing that you're actually looking at that is in front of you and being like, the fuck is this nigga talking about, man? <laughs> Here's the nicest way I can put it. And you know nicest is scare quotes because that's what this podcast is. The yeah. nicest way I can put it is that Michael B. Jordan is the Leonardo DiCaprio of his generation. And I don't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> that's how I would put it. The man can't act. He has one mode. Well, you know what? I, I won't. Okay, that's that's rude. I actually really, I, I don't like Fruitvale Station. However, I actually really love Michael B. Jordan's performance in Fruitvale Station as Oscar Grant. That is the one performance where I'm like, okay, this guy has like range to him. In most other cases, I am annoyed to be encountering a Michael B. Jordan performance in a movie, or even, yes, a TV show in the form of The Wire. I do not think Wallace is as interesting as everyone makes Wallace out to be. I'm you sorry. You feel bad, you know, like you feel bad for what happens to like how they do Wallace and everything. And he's adorable. Yes. He's a little straight backs and everything. But let's not, let's, let's, let's call things as they are. Let's, let's be, let's, let's be sober about this. Like there's, uh, the, the uh, did you watch Without Remorse? N- did you just ask me if I watched? No, of course, I did not watch Without Remorse. No, I did not. So, if you had time uh, the last weekend of April and also hated yourself a little, you could have sat down and watched an adaptation of a Tom Clancy novel that starred um, that's that had Michael B. Jordan playing this like uh, like super powered Navy SEAL character and. Just kind of, he ran from exotic locale to exotic locale, being like, "They killed my wife." That's who who was Lord London, (laughs) and it's just kind of like there's something that will always be like kind of very like high school quarterback about yeah, his yeah. <laughs> about his performances either as an anti-hero as a tragic anti-hero or as a villain where it's not going to be believable because it's just kind of like uh learned how to grimace out of a textbook it's like um yeah it's like it's there's there's something that doesn't that just doesn't gel he's not like, just a meathead because like gerard butler is a meathead but it's like Michael B. Jordan, there's something else there. You're right. It's just flatter than it should be in a way that Leonardo DiCaprio has always also been that to me, where it's just like, this guy does not have the range that his critical acclaim suggests that he does. Yeah, where every look, look on they him. announce every new thing that's coming out, and it's just like, oh, Michael B. Jordan should be Superman. Oh, Michael B. Jordan should be Blade. And it's just kind of like, well, I mean demonstrates a lack of understanding about both Michael B. Jordan and Superman and Blade. Um, the last part of the question, though, is him asking about Chadwick Boseman and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I haven't watched. Uh, and also, you know... I mean, like, I also I'm a, I'm a, I'm a put respect on it. Chadwick's name. You know, I, again, the limits of hating. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, like, we... Like, the thing is that, like, we hated a little bit on the Memorial Podcast because <laughs> there's also, like, the Message to the King, like, movie that came out around... The, you know what? That's true. Yeah, but but we cannot hate properly because neither of us has seen my Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, that's a theme in some of these emails, by the way. So so some stuff we have seen, and we'll talk about some stuff that people emailed us about. One of us has seen, and then some stuff neither of us has seen. But you know what? Because our listeners are emailing us about it, maybe we put it in the queue. Maybe we talk about it later. Uh, we'll see. John writes. Uh, Hey guys, first off, love the pod. Not always well-versed in the topics you cover, but I appreciate how you talk about them all the same. Thank you. I don't feel like there's another pod that has the same voice and approach as you two. Shout out to y'all and your producers. My cue is about the movie landscape. I've listened and agreed with your thoughts on the Disney content machine. I've enjoyed a good amount of their stuff so far, but they're blending the line between honest storytelling and building content exclusively from a business perspective. How worried are you about the overall movie landscape and the ability for filmmakers to get creative and do stories out there? Oof. I don't um, know nothing about the industry. That's the thing. I, so that, the, yeah, the framing, like the framing we, of the question is about the industry, right? And like, that's where, 
you know, you got to let go and let God. Because I, I <laughs> like I and, and this sort of came up when we did the superhero symposium, right? That like I think I just kept invoking the idea as if it was backed up by a Pew survey. That 50% of all pop culture now is superhero entertainment. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is that like it's 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 50% of consumable pop culture, by which I mean the same handful of things that reverberate around the Vulgosphere as soon as a trailer comes out. Yeah. Um does feel roughly like 50%, but that's like not an accurate um figure by any means. Like we know nothing about what the industry's doing. Like, yeah, it's just like there's we the best that we can possibly hope for is that our Disney overlords are benevolent. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just this move. Okay, so this question, right? This question is kind of about saturation, right? But it's also about um, how much do these things feel like original stories or feel like inspired stories versus how much do they feel like they're kind of just clickbait content, I guess, or they're sort of just reacting to market demand. And I think a lot about this kind of, I had this conversation with Cam, my former podcast co-host, current writer at Rolling Stone, Calston Collins, film critic. And we were talking about Underground Railroad. And one thing he said to me that I sort of got fixed on was, you know, everybody thinks they're tired of watching these slavery things, like slavery movies, right? But they're not as many of them as like, like for all of the exhaustion people have with this kind of thing, they're not as many of them as people insist that there are. It's not like 50% of black entertainment is movies about slavery. That's just not true. 50% of black entertainment is sitcoms on networks that white people don't watch, right? Like that's the actual case. And I feel like that's kind of the caveat I would make about some of the stuff we've said about superhero stuff is that the saturation in the mainstream is real. It is very real. That is where I will stand by my completely fabricated 50% figure. But yeah, I think part of this kind of question is about stuff outside of the mainstream. If you're tired of watching Disney stuff, you know, you you could always go read a book, right? Like that's that's always that's always a sort of caveat implicit in in when I'm complaining about this stuff. Yeah, look, I know I could, could go read a I could go read a book, right? You could read a book. I can watch an independent release, right? You could bake a dish. You could be on Criterion. There's yeah, there, I could other, be on there are obviously other yeah. things to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess the answer is like in a broader sense, beyond just sort of the mainstream stuff that dominates news cycles every week, it, there are people telling new stories and doing new stuff. It's just that I think um, the sheer force of all the the superhero and also Star Wars stuff from Disney in particular makes it feel like being at the margins of pop culture right now, those margins feel further away than ever is maybe... Yeah, uh, maybe like more of a better way to put it. You know, I mean, like it's these are if we're talking about the uh, these mostly these television shows being personal stories pushed through genre. Like it's just that superhero is what is selling the most. So you know, you get stuff like Jupiter's Legacy, <laughs> um, which is. I, you know, I, well, I don't want to talk too much about it. I only watched the first episode, but the action was not that tight. It doesn't seem like a compelling family drama like it's supposed to be. But yeah, I mean, like it's, it's, it's more so that it feels like, yes, I agree that being on the margins feels even more like being on the margins currently. Yeah. Um, as, so what, how worried are we? I don't know. I, I'm a nihilist about I mean, about. <laughs> Like no, future? but how worried about, yeah, about or the ability like, uh, of, of people, you know, of new talent. But I don't know. I mean, new talent, they're going to have to, they're going to have to Trojan horse their way in the industry by having a superhero pitch and then going off and making a crazy movie about slavery. I don't know. Um, <laughs> next email from Omi, friend of the pod. I'm just wondering if any of you guys play the Monster Hunter games. Spoiler, I have not played Monster Hunter. I've, um, I've also not played Monster Hunter. Um, he goes on to explain that like he hadn't, and then he started playing on the Switch, and it's super fun. Maybe I'll try Monster Hunter. I, I'm playing a lot of Capcom games recently. I don't know. Um, it's a simple game at its core, but the gameplay loop is very satisfying. You can hunt monsters, carve them out so you can build better weapons, armor, fight harder monsters, rinse and repeat. 
So I'm wondering if you've ever played an EMH game, which we haven't, or I can also ask, what is the most satisfying gameplay loop you've ever played? Mm. That is a very good question. Hmm. Satisfying gameplay loop. You mean like in, in like it's we're talking Monster Hunter sounds a lot like like a Breath of the Wild type situation where you're just kind of like grinding your way from bottom to top and you get to see there's, you know, quantifiable progress. So you get to see the rewards of your labor in like real time. Why are you associating that with Breath of the Wild specifically? I'm curious to know. I because I played Breath, <laughs> Breath of the Wild and that's what it was like. I, I it's it's. There are, I guess I just haven't played many like games that have like that sort of loop. Or maybe I just don't recognize that I've played as many games as like I that, that have that sort of loop because I mean, like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater is like that. Like, um, the, like you just kind of loop around the same sort of locales until you get high enough scores to unlock other stuff and better clothes. And other characters so that you can skate the same skate parks, except for the few that you unlock. Yeah. Um, what about you? I mean, my, uh, I gotta go to adolescence, right? The original Resident Evil. Hmm. Because there's, when you talk about gameplay loops, right? It's about scratching an itch. And to me, unlocking the door, you know what I mean? The recursive unlocking structure of how the first Resident Evil game works, where the whole point is just like, you're stuck in this place and you need to progressively unlock the doors to get to other places. That just feels, I don't know. There's something, there's something I feel like you can do that kind of Myers-Briggs personality test with gameplay loops. And I, I wonder what it says about my personality. That like, yeah, I like the game where the whole point is that like, sure, there are zombies, but the main thing you do in Resident Evil is like move around items in your inventory and unlock doors. And that's the whole point of the game. <laughs> uh, Not, by the way, Resident Evil 1 Remake. Everyone says that's the best Resident Evil game and they're wrong. The original RE1 is better than the remake because the original RE1 has the terrible voice acting and it's just a different vibe. Like the remake is so it has the, it's funny because it has the same gameplay loops basically, but the tone mm -hmm. is so different. And nah, f that remake tries to be scary. First game is absurd, and the whole script is trash. And I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like I I really don't think that I have anything. I don't. I really don't have a game like that. Um. Because I mean, like I had sports games, which are like the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do the same thing over and over, seasons on end, and then you buy the game the very next year, the same one, just because they have jerseys that are updated and the rosters are updated and the characters, and I mean, like, and the faces look slightly more realistic. But the, th the, the but the, the 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 transaction of playing the newer games that's not like progress every to me. year. What you complaining is... about? You well, the thing is that the more realistic the games get, the more annoying playing them gets. It's like I mm. I'm, I'm relying of my physical limitations when I play act on an actual field or court. I don't come to video games to be reminded of them. I come to video games to dominate. Damn, that's like a statement of purpose. I love that. I love that energy. All right, okay, you come to I, dominate. It, of like it's you know it's if you are playing fifa against somebody it's it's important that you crush their hope very early yes um we have we have some anime questions now i'm gonna sort of before we get into these note that most of the things that are asked about there, there's some general gists here that we'll get into but a lot of talk about jujutsu kaisen which i i haven't gotten through yet you you have, Micah. I you will have, be the authority. Yeah. Some Yu Yu Hakusho, which I've never actually watched Yu Yu Hakusho. You're the one with strong thoughts about Yu Yu Hakusho. I just but then can't we also... believe that, dog. Like it's <laughs> it's a crazy life you lead, dog. Um, but we'll start with an email from Keel here. So okay, I always love the energy you two gentlemen bring to your pod, especially when talking about animated shows, because frankly, that's my area of interest. So this is an email about Castlevania. Um, and Keela's saying, the series does a good job of staying within its roots of dark fantasy without being insufferably bleak 
and grossly nihilistic. Of course, there's plenty of moments that are rooted in grimdark tone. It's definitely moody. But I'm glad there are moments of humor and genuine heartwarming scenes to break the tension. Which in our episode where we talk about Castlevania, that's sort of my whole thing, right? Is that like, I don't care about the lore of Castlevania. I don't even care. Normally, I would not like something that goes for the grimdark tone that that show goes for but to me it's all the human stuff man it's the humor and it's all the weird it's all the weird conversations in that show so Keel asks um, first of all Keel asks who is the winner or loser of the series I will say I never think of things this way I feel like this is a common framing it comes up it's yeah because it's it's more something like you cheat the shape of the narrative into that like it's like it's it's something that it's a it's a content generating question yeah, yeah. Like, Which is not, we're not, we don't mean that. And it's just that it's a common way to frame things. Like, I remember there was another podcast, like, maybe a year ago. I think I was talking about, um, I might have been talking with, like, Fantasy. And we were talking about Spike Lee movies. And I think, I think Sean put the simple question to me of, like, what's your favorite or like it was sort of like a ranking oriented question, and then my mind just went blank because I just don't think of stuff that like 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 that. You know what I it's mean? It's just like it's just not the way that you actually experience it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'm. So we're gonna skip who is the winner or loser of the series. Um, I will, however, answer which is your favorite season because the obvious answer is two. I think two is the best season of Castlevania. Um, do you have a? Uh... Wait a minute. Two like regale me. Two is is at what happens in two? This is the that's the beginning of the 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 road trip. Uh, like when we have we finally have our trio and they're doing stuff together out in the world. Yes. Yeah. Like in terms of it being like sort of a key change, season two is and honestly the best like writing amongst the characters because they develop their relationship over the course of the season. Yeah, I think probably season two is the best one yeah like two has a real sense of rapport yeah by then, by then um and rhythm yeah 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 favorite episode i don't know i'd have to even mm. having put these into a document i haven't I, I don't know yet what my favorite episode would be maybe the one where isaic kills all those dudes with the horses yeah i'd like isaac i just love origin, that bit. that's like, like the best isaac yeah. bit yeah isaac's uh like journey across the world where he's trying to like decide what he should do with his forge master power is like a really great episode because he's trying to decide whether or not his hatred of humanity is useful yeah and decides by the end of the episode that it still is <laughs> which is i mean like but it happens in like all of these really kind of parable like ways like meeting people out on the docks and having and being turned away because of like the way that he's because he's walking with a horde of night creatures, but the characters that he meets along the way are also amazing. That's what makes the episode so good. The blind shopkeeper, and then the the uh, the the ship captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you going? You you you'll be giving me coin, and we're not going to be. Um, <laughs> and my crew will not be eaten by beasties. <laughs> Wait, can I just say that your impersonation there is exactly your impersonation of Lawrence Fishburne? <laughs> I think is that like it, it is. It, oh, you mean my, yeah, my impersonation of Lawrence Fishburne on, of higher learning on the blank check? Yeah, okay. It because it is the same. It's the <laughs> same thing. It's just that is this it, guy say, is it exactly the same? I don't know. I think it's not the exact same character, but it is similar. Energy, young, lost black man, let me guide you to the next stop in your journey. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, favorite arc. Man, I just liked, I liked the idea of Lenore just sitting around asking all of these like hits blunt questions to Hector and Carmilla and then just sort of leaving the show unceremoniously at the end. She's like, I'm gonna go stay into some sunlight. I'll see y'all later. <laughs> I think that's the best arc in the show. Um, I really enjoy if it, if it's like, not if it's not Isaac's arc, which I've already been doing a lot of talking about. It'd probably be Saint Germain's arc because I also the 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 voice acted by Bill Nye is also mm-hmm. like really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the final season, I really like it when he just you know 
gets uh, some uh, uh, bass in his voice and starts yeah. slapping people around. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Uh, Uh, we'll, We'll go to the next question here. Um, again, sorry if I'm mispronouncing, I believe Mio. Uh, hey guys, hope you're all doing well. Why does every shonen anime have a tournament arc? Is it just bad writing? Also, what is your favorite tournament arc? Personally, I don't think I've, anything like, is like <laughs> if you got okay, so here's <laughs> I don't have a favorite tournament arc because I don't I don't actually be reading these shonen manga like y'all. Uh, like Imagine it's, having it's a just favorite like it's very arc. simple. It's very simple. If you like, it's it's you have studying. There's got to be a test somewhere. Like in this, and it's a very easy arena is to have a, an exchange event with a different school or a tournament arc or you know a tower a a, a pagoda. You know something mm, that the characters have pagoda. to fight their way up Classic and shit. learn things about themselves in the process and each other and how much they mean to each other and all this other stuff. And it's a good crucible for that. So that's probably why every show that anime has a tournament arc. Listen, I would just say revolutionary girl Utena accomplishes all the things you just described and it doesn't have a tournament arc. They just go after school and they have their little duels in the tower and it's beautiful. Okay, and... did I say it had to have that, or did I say that it was an easy uh, plot device? I will also say, I, I, um, again, people know my sensibilities after listening to this, this, our podcast together for long enough. They know I just have certain corners of anime and animation in general where I'm just curmudgeonly, right? And I know it's kind of capricious. I know it's kind of arbitrary, and I know this because I was actually on Amazon. I was looking to see, I was like, okay, should I should I buy the Blu-rays for Revolutionary Girl Utena? And I was looking at some reviews and I saw somebody leave a comment. And the comment was like, man, you know, this show is cool, but it's kind of the way they do the fights is kind of redundant. They reuse the animation. It's always it's like two minutes of animation that's in all the other episodes where they walk up the staircase and it's kind of like, feels like they cheaped out on the animation. And I just wanted to slap this person across the face. I'm like, this, it, there is meaning, okay? There is an artistic statement being made to the use of redundancy in <laughs> Ikuhara's anime. How dare you? How dare you besmirch the process, the ritualization of the conflict in this show? Which uh, speaks to the essence of that conflict itself. You swine. <laughs> Shakus, it's a, it's definitely like you. I can be you, defensive like, of dumb animation when I want you to. You had like the 
you did the the orator bullet pointing on the podium hands and everything. Like I'm, I'm very I impressed. Did. So I can for be this, defensive. For this Amazon I can, commenter. I can, yeah, I can be defensive of anime conventions when I want to be. But yeah, I I don't have any favorite tournament arcs just because you know shonen is not my strong suit in general. Uh, question from or not you know email from men. Hey guys. Love the show. I also went through Jujutsu Kaisen recently, and it definitely has a different feel from Demon Slayer. The powers and mythology seem a lot more streamlined in Demon Slayer, for better or worse. I was just curious if either of you watched Gundam. Because I don't really remember you mentioning them much on the show. The Gundam shows on the show. I thought Iron-Blooded Orphans was much better and coherent take on the Gundam stuff. So wondering if you watched it. Um, And also, we can get into the second part of this question in a second. Gundam. Oh, men, let me tell you something. I have watched Iron Blood Orphans so many times for the exact same reason, because it is an incredible take and more streamlined take on the Gundam stuff. Um, by kind of, I mean, like, there's still all of these, um, uh, like, uh, galactic politics, intrigue, trade commission stuff going on, but it is like a more human story. And I also like the way that the love triangles develop in the show and like how they try to uh, get at the part of what it means for one person to be home to another person. And the, what are the, what's the cost of that? Um, yeah. I mean, like it, yeah, like Iron Blooded Orphans is a very good show. Um, I don't know if you have watched it, Charity. No, and it's 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 odd, right? Like I've watched no Gundam whatsoever. And yet I I Gundam is one of those things where I unlike certain shonen things where I'm like, "Oh man, is this even for me?" Everything about how a lot of people describe a lot of Gundam stuff seems like I would clearly love a lot of Gundam stuff if I gave it a shot, and I just never get around to it. And instead, I've spent like 10 years listening to either like the waypoints podcast with like Austin Walker or like anime world order with Daryl Surratt. And I've been listening to podcasters sell me on Gundam for like 10 years. I've just never actually committed. You just yeah. charity. I've listened to who, hours and hours of who, podcast episodes about Gundam. wrote an essay about how important Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, nineteen ninety nine, is to Star Wars canon mm-hmm. because of all of its because of its racist. I, I think you were talking about the, the like the racist essence. You were talking about um, the the Mongol invasion of China, and yeah, somehow yeah. like there was all this other shit that was happening in that no, piece. The you, Japanese it, invasion of Manchuria, first of all. Okay, sorry. Excuse me. Um, but what I'm saying is that, like, you in particular would enjoy Gundam stuff because of all of, like, the, the because of the boardroom stuff. The, for the exact yeah, same reasons yeah. that, like, for the exact same reasons that Shin Godzilla is a better character yeah, drama than, okay. like, you know, Godzilla versus Kong is yeah. the reason that you would enjoy, like, Gundam stuff. But it's also, it's also, if there were ever an anime franchise that sounded like it was developed by Georgetown University, it's Gundam. <laughs> That's why I'm also surprised that I've just never really gotten around to. You know what it is, though? It's it's that Gundam, the structure of Gundam releases is such that, how am I supposed to know where to start with Gundam? You know what I mean? Even Again, I've listened to hours and hours of podcasts over the years about Gundam. I have no idea where I'm supposed to start. I'm gonna be. Te- I'm gonna tell you. Like I'm gonna tell this to you. True is that I've been somehow watching Gundam for over a decade, and I don't think I started or know where the beginning is at. Like it's, it's honestly, it was. It started with Gundam Wing for me. That is available to stream on your preferred streaming service. Right, but um, is it is it gonna be one of those things where I'm gonna get two episodes into Gundam Wing, and someone's be like, "Oh no, no, you shouldn't have started with Gundam Wing. You should start with." Gundam thighs. Like, I mean, you know like you got saying? the like, same. You got the same to... Google I got. Like, you, if you no, really want to start, if taste. you really, if it is, if it is, if you want to be a Gundam completist, I'm sure that there are ways to do that. But what I'm saying, what I can tell you, and what Min is telling you, is that Iron Blooded Orphans is a good watch. It has two seasons. It's digestible. It is a digestible take on the Gundam story. And then there is also, and I'm telling you, as a person that has watched Gundam Wing, that you can watch that, and you can meet Hiro Yui. 
and that'll be pretty tight for you. Okay, bad. Thank you. That's all I need you to say. You had to make it difficult. This is why we are like, it's the Eddie and Martin dynamic in life. But we get to where we need to go in the end. Not Thank over you, no cornbread, Thank you, Clyde. You're welcome. Uh, the next part of the question is about um, Dave Chang's pod, about The Last Dragon, wondering if we've seen that at some point and if it had any effect on us. Um, I haven't seen uh, Last Dragon. Wait, what about you? You Are are we talking, we, we mean the... Uh, Michael Martial Schultz's Arts. 1985 classic, The Last yeah. Dragon. Yes. Uh, I featuring. Do I know uh, this movie? Featuring Julius Carey as Shonuff the Shogun. Yes, I like it. I do. I do remember. I do remember The Last Dragon, and I was jumping around my living room after watching it on Stars, like Bruce Leroy. It was like it was a whole. It was you know who was who was this nigga that can catch a bullet in his teeth? <laughs> nigga, please! I don't recognize this cover art at all. Barry really? Gordy's the last. Tra- no. Wow. Yeah. Um, the original what effect, sexless what hero. Effect is it? Yeah. What effect? <laughs> it, so that's what men's asking about. Like, what's what effect has it had on you? Uh, what effect has it had on me? Um. I like I like I really don't know that I could say that it has affected me like in any profound way. Um, but I like you know I I'd, I'd, I'd say that it probably was the beginning or very near the beginning of my um, <laughs> um preoccupation with the villain of the hero story. Ouch. Um, you know because Bruce Lee was kind of lame, dog. You know Shogun's got. Swag. It's just like he just happens to be over an over-the-top hater. Like he didn't have to do all that crazy shit in his family's pizza shop with his sneakers and putting them on people's face and being like, you gotta kiss my shoes and stuff. That was he was foul. And you he know, got his ass whooped for that. But I do think that's where you and I have a lot in common, right? Because that's how I think of J- Javert and Les Miserables, right? It's just Javert. What was Javert really? He was an over-the-top hater. He didn't really have to do all that. And that's why I read that story with the profound sort of interest in Javert. I mean, <laughs> like, how are you going to watch that Rocky movie and not be like, I would much rather be like Clubber Lang? <laughs> Man, let's move on to the last part of this question, which is, uh, lastly, original Full Metal Alchemist greater than Brotherhood. Thank you. I think Brotherhood gets way too convoluted and the cast is too big. I'm good focusing on two brothers and their daddy issues and the scar lust twist. There are too many people in brotherhood that I just didn't care about. Thank you. That's all I'm saying about that show. Is we that are not like I'm not trying napkins. to go back to, to to talking about this again. Brotherhood is um it nutritious and good for you. It's wonderful. They try to turn it's that show into the West and Wing. Donner and Blitzen, and they we are not to going in, to disparage no. Brotherhood any further on this podcast. They you try to turn piece. it. <laughs> they All try right. to turn Full Metal Alchemist into the fourth season of the West Wing. I wasn't wow. feeling it. Wow, I love the original. Yeah, uh, you crazy, you wild as hell. Um, okay, so for the this next question, um, this reader with like to not have their name read so hey all of the podcasts i honestly forget who but i think it was micah that had mentioned that so far it feels like the plot of jujutsu kaisen really feels like it just wanders around with no real sense of direction and no central focus you write i'm right we're right together and to that point i completely agree and honestly would argue that the story is intentionally structured to work this way huh curious I'm up to date with the manga because I'm one of those guys, and so am I. I mean, like, I'm not really like that up to date with manga. I've read anything that has come out in a volume, but I don't like. I'm not online looking at scans anymore. That's a young man's game. And in hindsight, the decision to have the early part of the story to not have a central bad guy is such a good decision. Because the story ramps up to a huge ass interconnected web between so many characters so quickly that you kind of need an almanac to track how the plot properly progresses. But the work done to define and make the characters so personable is good that I don't care if you lose track of the winners are. Okay, so 
The thing with Jujutsu Kaisen is that it very feels like you're like for the beginning of the story, it feels as though you are only learning as much about this world as the students know, which is, I guess, a good method of storytelling, because by the end of the first season, um, like the like the first season doesn't do much but reaffirm your confidence in the in the central the the core trio of characters, and kind of tell you what what level they are at in terms of power and experience and whatever, which I mean like is good, but you have no idea where the story is going. Um, and I mean like in the manga, similarly, it's just kind of like you're getting. You, uh, it's just kind of like revealing more layers or outer rings of conspiracy and like layers of the story that are connected to people you relatives and distant relatives you haven't met yet and friends you have forgotten about. And I, I mean, like it kind of is a lot of like laying the track as you go, you go along. It feels like, um, but the characters are really personable and the relationships between them are are really good so you would be better served just kind of paying attention to that um rather than what it is that jujutsu high is fighting or protecting against specifically i don't know if you did you make it to the finale of the first season no no i'm i'm working pretty slowly through it and in fact i'm trying to watch jujutsu kaisen as a kind of put this on the background kind of show which is how i used to watch like most anime right it's like i used to just have it on constantly as opposed to it being like appointment viewing, right? Yeah. And yeah, I think m- my attention span combined with this show's particular approach to character development and right, like lore building, I think I, I need to take it slow. Um, like I like what I've seen so far, but yeah, it, it feels like less accessible. I, another reader obviously brought this up earlier, right? That like, um, it's just very different from how accessible Demon Slayer felt to me. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's a little less straightforward because, like, uh, it has the distractions of the Jujutsu Kaisen has like the distractions of the modern age and like high school, and there is somehow only Demon Slayer training for these people and one goal specifically. Um, Like, and there's, I mean, like, it's not so much that like Jujutsu Kaisen is way more complicated, so more as it is so much as it is like concern with slightly more things. Okay. Okay. That's fair. I honestly think the way my attention span is shaping up these days, I actually, the the thing I might end up gravitating toward is going to be Gundam. I might give, I might give iron blooded orphans a shot. JJK might have to wait. JJK might have to wait a little bit. If I give iron blooded orphans a shot. Um, but then maybe we get to talk about Gundam at some point in the future. Once I've been binge watched a lot of yeah, Iron Blooded Orphans, uh, I would would say feels much more urgent than Jujutsu Kaisen. Like the, why? The, why urgent? No, I'm saying that the way the story is set up and the way the story is okay. told, like it's more propulsive. It's like more of a situation where you're gonna want to watch the next couple of episodes, although it's gonna be a couple of gut punches in there for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to help you out. <laughs> Fair. Well, thank you, thank you, Micah. Um, I don't know any other stuff we want to wrap up. Like, there's a lot of. I, I feel like people have written in, uh, even outside of the context of mailbag stuff, with stuff that I maybe we've wanted to bring up. Like, somebody asked us about VR. I've never played any VR stuff, which actually sucks because I really wanted to play. I remember back when Resident Evil 7 came out, there were all these stories from people who were like, I mean, maybe that game is cool just if you play it on a PS4, but if you play that game in VR, you will shit yourself. And I still kind of want to do that. I mean... You know, you still want to shit yourself? No, I, like a I, I, they like, mean I, it metaphor. You know what I mean? I, like, I, I kind of want to be scared like that. Like, I'm just saying, like, it's just, you know, you can hit this <laughs> and it's it's called death. It's called death. <laughs> it's called a lot of life. It's called death. Oh, man. <laughs> I, but no, I like I have not played. Uh, I also have not played any VR, nor did I have any desire to play anything that could force me to possibly shit myself. No, uh, I'm I'm definitely down for that. 
definitely down. Definitely down to shit myself. I'm down to shit myself for this. I hate this. Why did I back myself into this line of question? <laughs> and then, yo, oh, somebody sent us a very passionate email about your mom that you shit yourself. <laughs> Uh, Speaking anyway. of shitting oneself, somebody sent us a very passionate email about uh, DJ Khaled. Can we go out actually on this? Because I feel like I yes, feel like, definitely yes. Wait, we okay, can. wait. I'm a, <laughs> wait. Um, okay. Today, my question is: Is DJ Khaled hip hop's biggest scammer? <laughs> Maybe the Bernie Madoff comparison. First of all, R.I.P. Uh, Bernie Madoff comparison isn't completely accurate, but you get the point. In recent years, we have continued to ask ourselves what this man actually does. He doesn't write on, produce, mix, or do anything musically on these albums. Aside from bringing these artists together for these tracks, then just slaps his name on them and doesn't credit anyone if I am to follow the credits on Spotify. We accept this because each album has a wide assortment of the biggest names in hip-hop, but honestly, the albums have been mid. Honestly, for my taste, they are straight bad. The rappers are giving half-baked verses. That part's true. Producers are giving in their B-side beats, and usually we get a terrible flip on a classic song. It's never worked out. All this to say, Khaled markets these albums to be anthems for the year and has produced no memorable results aside from the time he came in second to show his ass on the internet. Oh shit, that's right. Cause he got in that he was like beefing with his label over the Tyler the Creator, like outselling him or something. What was it? Oh, uh, oh shit. Wait, wait, was this was this when Igor came out? Yeah, um, and it was like there was the one Instagram video of him in his car talking about album sales, and then there was like a New York Post story saying that like DJ Khaled started breaking glass in the office because he felt like they weren't promoting his record right. Anyway, the the in all caps, the the writer so, says you know, make it something make sense. something bundles. Yeah, yeah like bundles. The, something about bundles. Something something about bundles. Uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. So I will say that there was a bit of investigative reporting on this very subject a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, on pigeon pigeons and planes. Yeah, because we used to talk was, about when I was at Complex, we used to talk about this yeah, in the office all the time. Like there, people want to know. There was, I I think, like you know, first there was the inquisition into who was holding his camera for his Instagram photos, uh, like you know, because there's aerial shots of him in the tub, you know, like who's doing that. And then I think that there was also there was also a piece that was about like what is it that he actually does, and at the end of it, I think uh, it, it's about like I think he was like the president of Death Jam South at the time. So I mean, like a, literally an executive that dances all up in the videos. Um, I, I mean, like I I think it's fair to say that he's kind of grown in, uh, like remit or uh like you saying a bunch brand of words size a lot and all of this other stuff i'm oh. just saying like it's like it's just like we've been seeing a whole lot more dj cat too much here's nigga, the thing goddamn like it's you- <laughs> it's like it's there needs to be like shout, shout, shout out to paul thompson who in the first uh video for the newest cal out Cal album came out um which looked like the kind of gentleman's lounge that nobody would want to go to. Him and Nas and Jay-Z were there smoking oh, cigars yeah. inside. And they were like three girls dancing off in the corner. Like in the like it's such a it, you know, love at the time of quarantine type video. Yeah. Or uh, loveless sex at the time of quarantine ass video. And Paul was just like, uh Khaled needs to be investigated by the Warren Commission. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, here's and he's absolutely right. You you want to get you want to sort of you want to tell people that Khaled's status in hip hop is not that complicated. You want to say, oh, he's it's just like DJ Clue. But here's the thing: DJ Clue helped give us Heartbreaker <laughs> by Mariah Carey. <laughs> can D, can DJ Khaled say that for himself? I, no, he can't. He's given us some Justin Bieber records that are not some of Justin Bieber's best material. He gave us the same two Justin Bieber records, two <laughs> summers in a row. 
And he was because he was just like, you know, hey, you know, this summer, though, you got to do it with Quavo and Chance the Rapper. You got to make that work, buddy. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I feel like I've, you know what it is. Khaled is one of those people who hit a statute of limitations. And now we're not allowed to ask the question anymore of like, what is this like, dude doing? what is it? What is he doing? What does he have on everybody? Like, yeah. it's those albums are like, you know. The, the 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 Nike commercials that come out before world sporting events like <laughs> featuring a bunch of athletes that aren't really putting up those types of numbers anymore <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely not um, I think that's all we got in the tank yeah I think that's that is all the hating that we can do this week uh, I'm gonna go watch some Iron Blooded Orphans listeners I mean you know Keep sending us emails. We love reading them and responding to them. Uh, soundonlypod at gmail.com. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. Shouts out to our producer, Erica Cervantes. We will see y'all next week. Bye.